Biblical book was written by a former tax collector back when taxes were totally, totally, completely unfair, unlike today. And tax collectors were considered the lowest of the low. And Jesus just comes along and picks this guy, and he walked away from all of that that the world had to offer because tax collectors got a cut of the money that they collected. So they were really good at their jobs. He left all of that and wrote this beautiful book later on for us to, to enjoy and to study. In Matthew twenty-eight sixteen, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had, uh, had told them to go. When they saw him... They worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. Well, Jesus died on the cross on that terrible Friday afternoon. And some of the women, you know, came uh, to the cross on the, you know, the first opportunity. And then they came to the tomb at the first opportunity. And, you know, on that Sunday morning. And they found something joyous. They found him alive. They talked with him. They were completely kind of flabbergasted. He told them to go get the disciples and go meet him in Galilee. And they understood Galilee. Galilee was way up there. That was where their home was, where they'd spent time. So the 11 disciples and, and the women traveled to Galilee for several days. It wasn't just an overnight trip. I mean, it's a several-day trip. And I can imagine the conversations going on. Okay, did you really? Okay, wait, wait, wait. How did he look? Did he, did he really have the holes? Did he not have the holes? I mean, was his body just decimated? Did he still have the scars? Did he, I mean, you can imagine all the different... I, did you really see him? I, don't, I, I mean, you're a woman. That's how men treated women, right? That's not what I'm saying. I could imagine what they're... You know, because the society back then. So they traveled there. And when they finally saw him, it says that he, they fell down and worshipped him. It doesn't say they ran up and gave him a big hug or anything. They fell down and worshipped him. They were so amazed and aware of who he was that they worshipped him. But a few were not sure, the scripture says. I mean, you can imagine they were confused. You don't come down from a Roman cross alive. You just don't. They're really not sure what to think. I mean, he was buried. They saw it happen. But Jesus just presses ahead, and in verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus tells him, Don't just stay here. Don't go back home and just start your life over again. You should be ready to travel. This was the thing for Jesus. I mean, for the disciples. Now, we a lot of times we use this to uh, we'll um, we'll we'll grab this topical verse 
And we'll preach this whole sermon about going out into the world and making disciples. We're going to send, uh, you know, our missionaries all over the world. And, and, you know, right here he's talking to the disciples. Go out into the world. Be ready to travel. And thank God it wasn't just for the Jews. Right? Because you wouldn't be sitting here if it was just for the Jews, right? Because how many Jews do we have here today? Yeah, we're Gentiles. We're not Jews. Jesus came to all the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas time. And isn't a Christian Christmas just an unbelievable great time? Isn't it? I enjoy Christmas just for that reason. I mean, there's a lot of things to celebrate there. And, and you know, we get to teach our children what the world is, is all about and what God is all about and what Jesus is all about and Him being born. And it takes time to teach children this. It's not a, a once, oh, I teach it to them and, and they will never forget it. I mean, Brandon has a great memory, but it doesn't work like that for kids. I was reminded of this this last week. Uh, Lisa got this really cool thing, and, uh, a whole bunch of little people and animals and a boat and, and you know, a whole bunch of kind of um, uh, disciple-like looking things and baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and all these, you know, all these little things so, so she could teach Bible stories to, to Brandon. And they sit down, and Lisa's all excited. I mean, she's really excited about this. This is a lot of fun. I mean, because kids, they like interaction. They don't like just a story, you know. Let's act it out with them. So Lisa gets it all out. She gets the boat out. She picked a story with a boat because he really likes boat. And the first thing he did was grab the boat and go, hey, Mom, let's see how fast this could go. And he's just off. And she's just so frustrated because she's trying to teach him. I mean, this is important. Well, in his mind, it's a boat. It takes time. It takes time for parents, a lot of patience, to teach children about God. Every night we sit down and, and we pray, and, and every night we ask Brandon, well, who do you want to pray for tonight? We're trying to broaden his, his mindset and, and not just thanking God for his Legos or his doggy or his whatever, you know. And, and who do you want to pray for? Every night he will say two people, and he will say the same two people. And we're like, come on, try to... And I'm not going to tell you who it is. I don't want people to get mad. But we're trying to, well, how about uh, pray for this kid at, at daycare, that one of your friends, or pray for this person, or pray for that person. And sometimes it works, and sometimes he completely just prays for his Legos. So, you know, it takes time. So we just celebrated the birth of Christ, and now we're studying the, you know, the resurrection and de- or the death and resurrection of Christ. But it's also the birth of something else. It's the birth of God sending his disciples into the world to change lives. Go and make disciples. This is an interesting word. It's the word Matthias or Mathetes. It means student or apprentice. I wonder if this is where the, the word Methodist came from. I don't know. You'll have to ask somebody like Dr. Kim that's smarter than I am. But in the first century, this was the ultimate way to learn. The ultimate way. To become a disciple of a rabbi. For the Jewish world, to become a disciple was, I mean, your family was like, you know, our families in, in America, it's, it's cool, you know, Harvard or Yale or whatever, you know, I mean, that's the ultimate, you know, Princeton or something like that. Well, for a Jewish family to become a disciple of a rabbi, 
That was the ultimate. And it wasn't just a, oh, I go meet the guy once a week or whatever. No, it was a 24-7 thing. They came and lived with you. They worked with you. They saw you. They, were experience, they experienced what you experienced, all these things. And there's all these different types of training. Some, some would have like these junior colleges disciples and some are universities and even Yales and Harvards and, and graduate schools for the, for the different rabbis and different things like that. But Jesus was a traveling rabbi and says, okay, guys, you need to go and do the same thing. Now, you, if you look at the scriptures, you start to understand that Jesus did not have these disciples from the very beginning. In fact, Jesus' public ministry started when he was baptized, and, and people started following him, and, and they, call, they were called disciples, and it was a huge group of people, okay? He didn't have the 12 disciples until about a year and a half into his ministry when he you know, started to, to pick certain people to do that. Simon, you know, uh, renamed Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John, and, and uh, uh, Matthew, and Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Thomas. Simon the Canaanite, James the Less, and Judas Iscariot. Now, I've memorized those and forgotten those, I can't tell you how many times. These 12 men were invited to invest their time into learning what Christ had to teach. He started focusing on them and really to develop them. He even sent them out a few times. Okay, now that I've taught you, go ahead and go out. Go ahead and try it on your own. And he would come back and he would kind of lamb blast them for a little bit. You know, kind of like, what were you thinking? No, 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 no. You need to pray a little bit more. You need to do this a little bit more. You need to do that a little bit more. He was teaching them along the way. Now, I've been fascinated with these 12 guys really all my life. And, and when we study their lives, we start to, you know, we're kind of struck by how normal they are. Because, you know, growing up, we're, I mean, these guys are, are put up on pedestals with the halos. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're way up there. I mean, this is, this is Peter. This is Paul. This is John. This is, you know, and they, these are the big guys, the big men. And we start to learn that they were just normal, average people. And we start to understand how real they were. These were flawed guys. They would say things that were completely wrong. They could actually be a little offensive sometimes. They would struggle to understand Christ and struggle to believe. They didn't get things most of the time. But they're so real. And this is why we relate to them, because they're just like us. Because how many perfect people we have here today? Okay, how many people do we you know, feel like we're perfect. Okay, no, don't answer that. But I'm amazed that Jesus didn't go to Princeton and yell of the Jewish world, didn't go to Jerusalem and pick from the finest schools the best students. You would think that, that you know, God would do that. Let's go find the best students. But he didn't pick a, a, a single Pharisee or Sadducee. He didn't pick a, a, pick a, a single, you know, rabbi of the group. Not one. No biblical experts in this group. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were, they were businessmen. They were regular guys. Eleven of them were from Galilee. Not exactly the center of intellectual pursuit. This is like going to Pecos, Texas and going, hey, you, hey, hey you, come on down. Yeah, yeah, you can be my, my disciple this week. I mean, these were, you know, Jerusalem looked at these like these were the backwards people. Jesus selected these men knowing how they would be received, and, and that is really cool. 
Knowing that people would, would have to look past their outward experience or, or their outward appearance and, and to be attracted to Jesus. These were not the sharpest tools of the bunch, you know. Jesus, Jesus often said to these guys, you were slow in faith. You were slow in learning. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, you were spiritually dense. Wouldn't you love to have a leader that's saying that kind of stuff to you? Just really encouraging. One time Jesus uses the word uh, ignoron, uh, ignoron moose is how it's pronounced. You don't have to, you know, ignoramus. Don't need a translation on that one. Yet with all these faults, these guys carried the gospel to the world. That is amazing. That is done by the Holy Spirit. I mean, we lost Judas. So there were 11 guys, and they, they added on Matthias, and, uh, or Matthias, however you want to say that, in, in the beginning of Acts. And the Apostle Paul was kind of brought into that. And these guys took the gospel to the world. Before the last apostle died, before John died, there were over 1 million Christians in this world. 1 million. Imagine that, that Jesus, you know, Jesus died around 30 A.D., 30, 33 A.D., depending on which calendar you go by and all that kind of stuff. And by 90 A.D., 60 years, one million followers of Christ. That is amazing. Started with a group of 12 guys standing around on a hillside and Jesus saying, go to the rest of the world and preach. Could you imagine a small group that you may be involved in, commissioned by God, and before you died, one million people being affected by that group? People did not see this coming. The night before Jesus died, these guys were, were arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom. And even Jesus said, what are you arguing, arguing about? And they told him and all that. And, and this, I think this is why he washed their feet, to show them what they should be about. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 here. He says, brothers... Think of what you were and when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not uh, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The original disciples were not impressive by, by any means, but they became impressive because they hung out with Jesus. They imitated Jesus and became filled with the Holy Spirit, and they became absolutely amazing men of God because they did that. We should, be, we should become students of these disciples. We should study what they studied. We should be like they were. One of the disciples of these guys, one of the students of these disciples, was named William Tyndale. Lived in the 1500s. Tyndale translated the first New Testament you know, into English the, uh, for the first time. They still have copies of, of his New Testament. I mean, wouldn't that be cool to have a copy of a, you know, a, a page at least from a Bible that was handwritten in the 1500s? They printed everything by hand. 
And he felt it was wrong that the common people could not connect to God, to, to not be able to possess, uh, possess the Word of God and be able to read it for themselves because the church leaders did not want the Bible printed in English. And you're th- you, you just shake your head and go, what? So he started to, to print these out and, and to write them out and bring it to the masses. Tyndale, uh, for, all, you know, for all his wonderful thing of trying to bring the Word of God to the people, what happened to him? Well, he was ex- exiled, he was imprisoned, he was persecuted, and then finally in 1536, he was tortured and strangled, and then they burned him on a stake just to make sure. Just so the church could say, this guy disobeyed us. And that's William Tyndale calling. Okay, I thought that was funny. <laughs> Apparently not. Come on, people, get a sense of humor here. Just because he wanted to bring the word of God to the common people. I'm sure the Lord gave him an awesome reward for what he did. But one of the reasons why he did this was because he took a, you know, he discovered something very disturbing. Because he took a survey of the priests that were around him. And, you know, in these beautiful cathedral churches, the stained glass windows with all the disciples in different scenes. You know, the, the Sea of Galilee scene with, you know, the, the, the wind and the waves and the boat going all the way. You know, all these different scenes in the beautiful windows. And he asked the priests to name the disciples. And they could hardly name any of them. Wow. He thought if the priest could not name the disciples, then what were they teaching to the masses? So Tyndale said, forget the priest. If they're not men of God, then forget them. And he got the Bible to the common man so they could study about the apostles, men who changed the world by following Jesus. Jesus told the disciples, go into the world and make disciples and I will be with you. So often we say, Lord, I want to feel your presence. Lord, it's been a while, and I really want to feel your presence. You know the best way to feel the Lord's presence? It's not to sing another song, though I love to worship. I love to sing. It's to go out there and do God's will. And when you're out there doing God's will, guess what? God's presence is with you. And you turn around, and you're like, wow. I didn't, God, I mean, God was there because he promises, go out and I will be with you always. The presence of God is found in obedience. Go and these, do these things and I will be with you. Go and do. I guess the other thing that really amazes me about Jesus is that Jesus' whole plan depended on these guys. He didn't have plan B. He didn't say, well, if the disciples failed, well, then I'm going to do this. No, his whole plan was with these guys. Even in Matthew 26, Simon uh, Simon Peter denies who Jesus was. I mean, they talk a big game, but but when the air gets put into the football, finally a laugh. Man, you you pay attention to the news at least. (laughs) But, I mean, when you're finally there, man, these are the guys you're going with, Jesus? These are the ones that, I mean, Simon just denied you. These are the, you know, now it's time for them to go and do, to make disciples, to go to all the nations. The word disciple is, is different than the word uh, convert. 
Jesus didn't say, go and recruit. Jesus didn't say, uh, you know, go and drag as many people in to, to, to fill the pews because we need numbers there. He said, go and make disciples. Disciples are different. It's very different. A disciple starts with, you know, with belief and confession. Then it goes way beyond that because it involves teaching and learning and trying, them trying to do things on their own and, and them messing up and them coming back. It's the church's job to make disciples, not just the pastors. The church's job to do this. And I think we as a church, and, and, and we as a church and as the church as a whole across this world, around this world, have failed at this part of the job. We've become, you know, let's convert places. Let's, let's, all, it's, it's all about the numbers of how many people have you baptized this year? How many people have you converted to, to, to Christ this year? It's become, you know, the numbers game. When the goal should be discipling. Make disciples. And these are made in smaller groups. The reality is this. We, we should be taking younger people than us. So if we're 112, take a 106-year-old. You, you know what I'm saying? Anybody younger than us and teaching them. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, then I have a question for you. Have you discipled anyone? He says, go and make disciples. Have you discipled anyone? Are you bringing a younger Christian along? Now, that younger Christian could be a little older than you because they just accepted Christ. You see what I'm saying? It's maturity of the faith, not necessarily maturity of the body. Are you developing relationships beyond, hi, how are you? I'm glad you're a Christian. What the church has done as a whole is once somebody you know, comes to Christ and starts showing up, then we're done. Oh, they've, they've shown up for three Sundays in a row. That's great. In reality, an older Christian should be coming alongside of them and saying, now that you've accepted Christ, do you know what God expects from you? Not the ABC rules, you know, I got my list of rules, but you know, if we love God so much and we want to please God, then what does God expect of me? If my son loves me, which he does, I love it. He tells me all the time. You know, he's always calling on the radio. Daddy, I need this. Daddy, you know, just like, Brandon, go to bed. And then every so often he'll go, Daddy? And I'll go, what, Brandon? He goes, I love you. That's really cool. And now I've, see, I, I get off on my notes and I tell little things like that. And then I'm like, okay, now what was I trying to say here? Oh, I know what I was trying to say. Brandon knows what I expect. Do we know? It's not a matter of, okay, Brandon, here's your rules. No, it's a, I love you, and these are my expectations of you as a young man as you're growing up. At four years old, there's certain things that I expect. Over at daycare, they don't feed you. You sit down and you feed yourself, right? Yes. Okay, well, then you can feed yourself at home. Mom doesn't have to give you every bite. Dad doesn't have to give you every bite. You have a hand. You have a fork. Eat. Okay, expectations. We should be going to God and going to, to those that are younger than us and saying, do you know what God expects from you? Do you know how to grow? Do you, know, do you know, even know about the Holy Spirit and what he can do for your life? One reason today the church is not that effective is because we've become shallow in this area and we wonder why people fall away from the church. Well, it's because we're supposed to be discipling them. So the point of Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is this. It is not enough just to attend church. 
and just to go out and get people to attend our church. It's a good start. It's a good start. It's a great start, but it's not enough. We should be discipling them after they come as Jesus gathered his followers the same way. And what he did was grab a few and disciple them. He couldn't disciple 500 of them all at once. You know, sometimes people are like, well, I'm not in that inner circle. Well, you know, sometimes a person can't broaden out to do everybody all at once. Even within the 12, Jesus had his three that he really concentrated on. We should be doing the same thing. So take a few people and build the church. We need to reach out and bring people to meet Jesus. Then we need to connect with them. And they should be serving as a, they, and growing in Christ, which leads us to worship. So my question is this. Who are you discipling? If you're not, then ask yourself, why am I not discipling someone? You may say, well, I didn't know I was supposed to be discipling somebody. Okay, well, that, that excuse works once. But now you know. God has called us to disciple. Now, let me give you a little bit of relief from banging you over the head a little bit. Those of you who have children, your number one responsibility is to disciple your children. That's your number one responsibility. Now, let me take that relief away from you. Are you doing it? Are you doing it? Are you teaching them the ways of God? Are you leading by example for them? Or is it more about parental correction and curfews? You see what I'm saying? What is it about as we parent? Are we teaching them the, the positive things about God? And as they get older, we should, we should look around and say, you know, as our children grow up and you know, even get out of the house, we should say, okay, now who should I disciple from this point on? Can I be an extra father to the fatherless? Or can I come along a, a father or a mother and help them with their young ones? Not to ever replace one of them, but to advise them and help them. Well, I'm pretty busy, Pastor Allen. Well, guess what? That excuse doesn't fly with the Lord. I'm sorry, it just doesn't. It just means our priorities are out of whack. Well, I mean, it's a really busy, busy season right now. Okay, well, season lasts, what, about three months? And 90 days from now, you need to ask yourself the same question. Well, I'm not really ready to do that. I'm not mature enough. That's actually a pretty legitimate thing to, to be able to say, well, I'm not really mature enough to disciple someone. I need time to mature. So now what do you do? Well, you start your maturing process. That's what you do. You can't you, you know, use that excuse a year from now if you haven't done anything about that. Well, I'm still not ready. I think that, you know, and then I look at that and I say, well, I think maybe the Lord needs to challenge you then. Cause you to grow while discipling someone. Well, I really don't know the Bible. Well, then start learning the Bible. You need to start learning it then. Hey, well, you know, we need to start bugging other people. You know what I'm talking about? Go to somebody and say, hey, would you, would you like to disciple a younger Christian like the Lord has called you to do? And just smile at them. Bug someone. I'll read this, and you'll read it, and then you can tell me what it means. 
And we're like, well, I, well, then we have to mature in the faith to gather them. Well, I just don't know. Who should I even pick? Well, pray about it. Preferably select someone. Select someone and ask them to, to be your disciple. Set a, set a time to, to get together, you know, maybe once a week. Now, I'm not asking you to 24-7 like a rabbi did back then. But we, we should carve out time and be able to meet with one another. Pick a book to go through, maybe a Bible book or even a, a book that's outside of Scripture that, that relates to God and talk about it. In fact, two people who have never been disciples can do this together. You can learn how to disciple together and mature together. Ask for help when needed. Well, I'm really uncomfortable with the one-on-one thing. Well, then join our Wednesday night group. I mean, we're going over the fundamentals. We're going to start that series of, you know, revelations, what, end times. What, what is, how does that have to do with us? And then we're going to go into God and Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit and the different attributes of angels. And we're going to kind of hit the basis, uh, basics of the Bible. Come and be discipled with us. Grab someone else and say, join me. Then later in the week after Wednesday teaching or after Sunday teaching, get together and say, okay, what did Alan teach us that was completely wrong? Or what did God try to say to us? What did this scripture mean? Or start a men's gathering or a women's Bible study, you know, or join that when they start. You know, it always helps to have a partner in crime. You know what I'm saying? Somebody to, to encourage you, somebody to to drag you along when you're not feeling like it that particular day. I guarantee you, I, I mean, we're all like this. If we have a friend that's going, we're more likely to go do something together with them, right? If it's just us, guess what? Oh, I'm just not feeling like it today. Oh, I don't want to do that today. But if you're meeting somebody, get a partner in crime. Don't go out and do any crimes, but you know what I mean. But while you do this, open up in a new way. I mean, not, not your church way. Not with the barriers. You know, well, I put on my nice shirt today. You know, this is, this is who I really am every day. Not that way. Get, get together and, and, and talk about your true self, your struggles. Now, you need to you know, maybe modify your, your true self along the way as you, you, you start to look more like Jesus as, as you're a disciple of his. It takes time to change certain things. They don't hide. But one of the biggest tragedies in the church is hypocrisy. On this way at church, but at home or in job or whatever else, I'm completely different. That's the biggest tragedy of the church. You know why? Because non-Christians look at you and say, Well, if you act like that, I'm certainly not going to your church. I don't care how many times you invite me. Hypocrisy is a church killer. It's a disciple killer. It's a growth killer. Not only for other people, but for yourself. You know, a lot of times, mom and dad will fight on the way to church, and then all of a sudden, you know, and the kids are sitting there watching it and get to church, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, how you doing? My boy notices everything. He knows when we're discussing something serious, and he will flat out say, what are you talking about? What don't you want me to hear? And some of it he doesn't need to know, uh, you know, and uh, so we have to discuss those things later, not around him. Last night we were uh, eating, and I was saying something about one of his, his little toys, and I said, well, I don't really like blah, blah, blah. And he goes, 
well, why don't you like blah, blah, blah? And I'm sitting there going, you were playing your game. What are you doing listening to us? He listens. But let's not act like the world is perfect all the time because it's not. Let's be real. Let's be like the disciples. God uses real people. Let's be honest with each other as we get one-on-one with our struggles and our our difficulties in life and our our joys and our our triumphs. That's why I I love getting together with Roger and doing that video, and I'm going to try to do more of those uh, with different church members so we can kind of see a different perspective of certain people. Because, I mean, this, uh, and Roger's probably going, I don't really want... You know, I'm talking about it up here, but I'll talk about it. This was a struggle for him to, to get, I mean, Roger's not a pill popper, but he was a pill popper. You know what I'm saying? The doctor said, take this. Authority, okay. And he gets addicted to him. He, it was a struggle to get off of that. Okay? We need to understand those, those, those struggles. We need to understand the triumph of, wow, I mean, I couldn't drive and now I can drive. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, think about you not driving forever now. How many people would enjoy that? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? We need to talk about those triumphs that we have. We need to be honest with each other. Also, we need to take along other people when we do these things. My dad drugged me everywhere, and it was a pain in the butt. Sorry, but it was. My dad took me everywhere. Every time he went to go help a friend, guess what? Alan? Or it was more like, Al? And he'd just drag, he'd drag me. Let's go change so-and-so's oil. Let's go work on so-and-so's brakes. Let's go do this. Let's, you know, let's go haul branches out of this guy's backyard. Let's go do all these things. And you know what he was doing? He was discipling me. And as a kid, I actually, I actually just hated it. Every moment of it, I hated it. Go sit down there, and he'd just go, Al, hand me that wrench. I felt like I was just there to give him stuff, you know? But he was teaching me. I'm so thankful for it now. Back then, not so much. We need to slow down, and we need to drag somebody along and be an example for them. Especially when we serve. And then if you go, you know, if you're planning on helping out with a ministry or something, drag them along with you. We need to start encouraging one another when we serve. We need, as we drag them into it. We need to show each other how we serve the Lord and Savior as we go along in this life. We need help finding our gifting. As we try out different things, as we, you know, some people are like, well, i got to take that gifting, and I can't work outside of my gifting, because these are my spiritual gifts. And God's sitting there going, yeah, those gifts, and when I need your spiritual gifts, I will use those spiritual gifts, but I need you over here serving in this area right now. Yes, I know this is beneath your spiritual gift, but we still need somebody there right now. You see what I'm saying? We have talents and gifts. Talents and gifts. And along the way, we need to encourage each other. Have you ever received too much encouragement? If one more person encourages me today, I'm just going to scream. No, it's if one more person irritates me, I'm going to scream. If one more person does something bad to me, I'm going to scream. Not if one more person encourages me today. Now, as we encourage each other, we also need to rebuke each other once in a while. Alan, what were you thinking? 
so-and-so over hey, I'm discipling you. What, what was your decision process in that? Because that was totally just messed up. Jesus did that, but we're so afraid to offend each other. We need to give permission to each other to offend each other. Does that make sense? I don't mean walk up and just slam somebody all the time. I'm talking about if you're in a discipleship you know, relationship, say, you know what, if I do something wrong, you have the permission to come to me and say I did something wrong. And to, in a sense, verbally knock me upside the head. Because sometimes we need to be straightened out. I tell you, I, well, I won't go into stuff that I need to be straightened out about when I was a young one. But thankfully, the Lord has, over time, every time, everywhere I've been in life, the Lord has put somebody in, you know, that was older than me, more mature than me in the faith, that would straighten me out when I needed it, would disciple me when I needed it. We need to look for that. And if we're sitting there going, I need to be discipled, look around for somebody whose personality you can get along with, because it doesn't work if your personalities don't get along, Okay. Find somebody you can get along with and say, will you disciple me? Bug them to the point where they say yes, because what are we supposed to do? Go and convert people? No, we're supposed to go and make disciples. So the question is, are we making those disciples? And then when we make those disciples, guess what? We kick them to the curb so they can disciple somebody else. It's a great way to serve the Lord when you disciple somebody. And it blesses the church, the church as a whole Christian community, beyond belief. And therefore, it blesses the world when we make disciples. See, that's how it works. Twelve guys. Thirteen bringing in Paul. One million Christians in 60 years. What will you do in 60 years? Good question. What have you done? It's never too late to start. We are called to go out into the world and change it. And we can't do that if we sit on our bottoms. We can't do that if we're not willing to learn the Word of God. We can't do that if we're not willing to go out and find somebody else to disciple. Like I said, if you have a family, it starts with your family. But it doesn't end there either. If you're older, look around and say, who should I disciple? Now, it doesn't mean spending 20 to 30 hours a week with them, okay? Don't give me that like, the, you know, don't take it like that. But it does mean saying, who needs it? And am I willing to do it? Now, that ends Matthew in a phenomenal way. Because if you go on and read Acts, you go on and read the stuff that they did, the Holy Spirit used them to do amazing things. The Holy Spirit can use you to do amazing things in people's lives today if you're willing. Let's pray as the worship team goes ahead and comes up. Lord, I thank you for giving us real-world examples, guys who were just guys, guys who messed up, guys who... Uh, <laughs> just royally just kind of just fell over and over again. But guys who triumphed too, those that we could study and say, wow, look at them as they can do it and I can do it, Lord. I pray that through your spirit that you bring people in our lives that we can disciple, that you prod us, that you kick us, that you do everything you can to bug us until we decide to do that. 
as we study your word, as we bring those along, that we serve in a phenomenal way and we drag those others with us as we do it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may he impress upon your heart through his spirit to go into this world and make disciples. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.